If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. going we're going yeah. hi marlia hi patrice i should stop asking are we going <sighs> that's are okay. we on there's a little red light that's shining i always ask and i'm the one that presses the button so <laughs> that's how it is still haven't gotten your monkey to get you a button pressing monkey oh, no i do i'm really glad um i didn't notice that handle of like high proof gin oh. before I poured. I just oh. saw the Bombay Sapphire. So I was like, oh, I wonder what happened to that other one. So I just made it with the Bombay Sapphire and turned around and saw that high proof. And I was like, yes. oh, good. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know if we were going there or not. I don't think we should go there. No. We have to pick our kids up after school today. We, we do. We have to be responsible adults. That we are. We are. We are. <clears throat> that said... <laughs> Today's gonna be a shit show. <laughs> We're struggling. We are struggling. Mm. Everything with life. I'm struggling with stories because my story today I stumbled upon last night. Because this this it's been an intense two weeks, mm -hmm. and um, just because of my workload, and so. Oh, what the hell, what Alexa? The Oh, I'm sorry. That was me accidentally setting off where the fuck's my phone on my watch. Oh, okay. Well, now she's listening. Oh, because she... I said her name. Oh, you did. Oh, go away. Okay, thank you. Does she just stop? No, she's still. She's still. She's listening. We should pause this part or something. <laughs> okay. 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 She's done. She's done. <clears throat> No, what so was I yes, yeah, you said so. it's been a shit show, and you found this story this last night, and and, and oh my god, this story is fascinating to me, but it's so complicated, and I really feel like we need to clear off a wall and like start doing some investigation with like, like the pictures and, and the, the pins and the threads, because I don't know if I'm gonna be able to tell That's the story exciting. without visual aid, hmm. like seriously. But hmm. we will talk about that in just a little bit once I get started. I don't want to, like, jump the gun here. Cause don't jump the gun. We are in Halloween month. It Halloween! Is October. Yes, all the memes. All the memes. Bring it's them. still, like, 98 degrees outside in Alabama. It was 100 degrees yesterday when yes. I got in my car in the afternoon. And it's not supposed to be much better until this weekend. And then James Spann has promised us, like, no more 90-degree weather after this weekend so. and anyone who isn't local james Spann is our local weatherman and he's basically god right so he tells us when the tornadoes are coming he doesn't like if the tornadoes but when because there are tornadoes and we have to like be prepared twice a year for them like there's two season tornado seasons a year 
and he we always like keep an eye out because he will tell us when to take shelter and mm-hmm. he'll get us through the storm so. like street by street too street we may have by, talked about this before but yes. it's still kind of fascinating like he goes down to the street by street map and tells people when to get right in cover so right he deserves some she, he deserves some plaudits i always have to throw in that he is a climate change denier i can't <laughs> i can't I, let I, that as, go yeah you know that's just but he's good at telling us when the tornadoes might kill us. Right. So, so, you know what? You know, it's, trust them on the tornado. No white. black and white. <laughs> no black and white. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, okay. So uh, one of the things that we talked about doing, because we were sitting um, at the coffee place drinking coffee, Java Jolt. <laughs> like you do. Like you do. And <laughs> we just started, com- we were talking about our Halloween costumes because we have a live event coming up at the Goat House Beer Garden in Montgomery on October 26th. And we are going to dress up and so are you. And we are going to dress up and so are you. And so we've like really been talking about our costumes and trying to be proactive and get it done like now instead of the night before which is always when it's happened Mm -hmm. which is probably when the majority of my costume is going to happen um however and we were talking about it because you were being super like optimistic about how much you could do (laughs) she's been saying for weeks i know exactly what i'm gonna be it requires a lot of sewing and i'm like oh my god really (laughs) like no don't do that (laughs) well I've, i've been you know reality has struck and I've been able to, like, you know, circumvent some, like, massive time delays with the sewing. <laughs> so, thank you, Amazon. <laughs> and so now I'm still optimistic. I'm still really excited. Um, I just hope everything fits. Mm-hmm. And that's what got us into the conversation about being a larger person mm-hmm. like I am. And finding a costume that's comfortable that it's not all like sexy, That's sexy, flattering too. but it's flattering. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to be like the frump. And, but we were talking about, you know, what costumes <laughs> would be comfortable. And I was like, why don't we come up with some costumes here that would be entertaining Maybe not so flattering because I my first. So we're gonna pick no, three. You want to you want to know how this started? We're sitting there and we say <laughs> both of us say I just I just got on Google and I looked up Halloween costumes for fat girls. And this <laughs> right? is what came up. And what did you say? You could just she's like I just give up. Here's what I'm gonna be for Halloween. Right. And so I'm gonna be a bag of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> And so after I said that, we got so tickled at that, that we were like, okay, now we're, we're going to start coming up, um, leading up to Halloween with three costumes apiece that we can be, that's not going to be sexy Mr. Rogers in size four. <laughs> sexy Mr. Rogers. It's a real thing. Oh my God. It actually is there. Oh, bless his heart. He is like, he's probably accepting it. Okay. Cause he was a cool dude, but you know, I would be rolling in my grave. Mr. Rogers like, no. would never shame anyone. He would never shame anybody. But he would, he would, he would have a conversation he, with There you would be a conversation. Yes. In the quiet corner. Yes, yeah. quiet corner and you know. And it would be all positive, and and you would leave 
a better Feeling person. forever change. Yeah, absolutely. So are we doing this? Uh, you do three, I do three, or you do one, I do one, you do one, I do one, you do one, I do one. Uh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I just came up with mine on the drive over because I completely <laughs> forgot we said we were going to do this. So my first costume idea was just to be an Amazon box because, <laughs> you know, you've got them sitting around and you can duct tape them together at the last minute. Anyone can be an Amazon box. Yes, it's like that meme with the guy that was an Amazon box that I sent you that was talking about like after vodka <laughs> you have a friend that does this <laughs> and it was basically somebody in an amazon in box. a box all right that's a good one i like that so, okay so my second one is i'm gonna be my own hair <laughs> in this weather in this weather well at any time because my hair has its own personality <laughs> And if you've never seen what I look like, I have naturally curly hair, and it's been a blessing and a curse most of my life. <laughs> so a blessing because I can sometimes get up and not have to brush my hair and look like I've, I'm okay. <laughs> and then other times, most of the times I get up and don't brush my hair because I'm lazy, <laughs> and my hair does not look okay. <laughs> and it looks like it's crying out for help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I have some I have some interesting pictures too that I've taken like because I'm always fascinated by my hair simply because <laughs> I consider it its own person. It's like its own actor in this narrative. And so there are some times where it wakes up and it is like it is so off the chart crazy. Does it ever talk to you? <laughs> Not yet, Not yet. <laughs> but I keep listening. <laughs> I talked to it for sure. <laughs> oh my lord! Okay, so that was my second one. Mine are all dumb. I decided I could be a hay bale because <laughs> I really could just walk out in my front yard now and like roll around and <laughs> come up covered in long, dry grass, and I could totally have oh, a costume. Oh my gosh! And then if you are like a hay bale, then I think somebody needs to be like one of those uh, masking tape rollers. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you just roll that. around. I need that for my house. Like house size mm. um, roller, lint roller for my house. Okay. So my last one, <laughs> the last one, kind of still on the hair theme, is a hairy toe. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I started like really thinking about the logistics of how to build that. And I was a little excited. I was like, man, you know, I could like take those amazon boxes and kind of sculpt them into kind of a cone shape oh my god oh no i really like you got too into this i was like really <laughs> I was like, maybe i will be a hairy toe i feel like if you were the hairy toe you would have to make like the most disgusting giant toenail oh, that you could possibly imagine yeah. i don't think i'm comfortable with that <laughs> <laughs> i'm not comfortable with that so anyway that's my three what's your last one the shrubbery. <laughs> shrubbery. <laughs> Bring me a shrubbery. That's it. Because, you know, yeah. <laughs> when in doubt, always just shrubbery. throw out some Monty Python and it'll save you every time. Every time. Oh, my gosh. So many Monty Python costumes you could be, too. Oh, so many. So many. I'm going to be a giant dead parrot. <laughs> My friends will just have to carry me around in a wagon. Oh, my gosh. All uh, right. So there's our top three for the week. Do have some chipmunk news. Oh, yeah. Chipmunk protocol. So I have 
re-released a chipmunk that spent the night with us because we were too tired to chase it <laughs> and catch it. Um, it has been called and re-released into the wild thanks to my husband's shuffleboard move <laughs> out the door. That was like a team effort. High five. And then um, I went back into the bedroom. I was like, oh, something has died. What? You didn't tell me this part. Yeah, well, this happened last night. So I'm back there and I was like, straight up, there's something dead. And then I had like a flashback of two years ago when we had the <laughs> demon house incident where we had like 2,000 flies, mm -hmm. like the body flies. And they are not house flies, they're body flies because they got that green sheen to mm -hmm. them. And that's straight up like some body farm shit. And so that started happening. I'm like, oh, oh my God. No. And this is before like I really kind of noticed that, you know, the cats were bringing in dead shit. Mm hmm and live shit and so like all of a sudden literally you could not walk through the house without like having 10 flies hit you in the face it was so amityville horror it, yeah yeah yeah, amityville. It, yeah it was so i was like I, it freaked me out a little bit because i'm very comfortable in my house i don't have evil like i don't get scared in my house which is like really kind of impressive for me because mm -hmm. i'm scared of a lot of things but i feel very comfortable in my house i'm not scared of anything in it and but that shit happened i was like oh i'm overlooking something there's something i should be worried about but come to find out that my cats bring in things and sometimes they die in my house and they will die without smelling or they'll go somewhere like the vents oh yeah and i cannot and you would think you would smell it but for some reason we didn't smell it it but, takes a while yeah. sometimes but, oh, my God, last night. I know I, too much about this. I wish I didn't. I walked into that <clears throat> shit, and I was like, oh, damn. Luckily, I found it pretty much right off. It was taken care of, and then I had to, like, get out the incense mm -hmm. and just purify that shit. Oh. So, two Sage. Sage. You need to burn sage anyway. I do. Do you know there was, like, this study that came out? Because uh, I saw it on Facebook, so it's got to be true. Right. I saw it, and it said that, like, if you burn sage, it actually, like, kills bacteria and shit. Yeah. And now I'm thinking about it and thinking, that's totally bullshit. You think? That's essential oils bullshit. I really do think. Hmm. I really do think it is. But, okay. you know what? That Sounds doesn't good. stop me from doing right. it. Right. Right. Oh, I think tell, it's helpful. Right? I think I, it's helpful. I think so, too. Still want to do Even it. if it's, like... Just like purging <clears throat> mentally your well-being, so that's more important than anything else. Your perception of the world is the real reality. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I think that's all I've got uh, for today. Yeah, I think that's all I've got too. I'll double check. Hold on. Okay. I keep it in the Sorry. notes app. I'm trying so to. So I've got like fifty little show notes notes yeah. in here. Oh, here's a really important one. No, oh, good. Uh, so we neglected to mention about our live show that the morning after our live show at Jacksonville State University, I was texting some, excuse me, some friends who had come who had left before we were able to get off stage and get to them. So right. I didn't get to say hi to them. So right. I had texted them, asked how they liked the show. And uh, one of my friends, Teresa, had been there with her partner, and they had had a blast. And she was texting me all these things about how what they liked. And she said, "But listen, oh, yeah. now that doll is haunted." And I was like, "Yeah, no well, shit. No shit. Like, we, we just told you. Yeah, we know. <laughs> we have video evidence." But she's evidence. like, "No, no, no, no. Like on stage, 
haunted. And she said that through the course of the show, Claudia was rotating in her chair <laughs> to the point where you could watch her moving. And so uh, she said, at, like, she kind of didn't really think that much. Like, she, she started looking at it and then she was like, are the lights different? Like, right. is it, am I really seeing what I think Is it a trick of the I'm light seeing? kind of thing? And then her partner turned to her and said, like, I swear to God, that thing is moving. <gasps> and so it was the two of them. And then after I told that story to someone else, they weren't the only people that saw that happening. Oh, shit. I just got like chills up my spine. So I, you know what? I'm, I'm so like, I've never had a hunting experience. And then it's like, that doll is responsible for everything supernatural in my life. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, so anyway, that that happened. Right. And uh, the video will be going up on, or did it go? Uh, no, the video will be, the video is it. difficult and huge. It's huge. So please, please have patience with the video on, on Patreon um, because that's hard shit to put together and get uploaded to things because files are fucking huge. Right. But um, yeah, if, if you're on Patreon, you will be able to see that video and I hope we're it all shows gonna, it. yeah, we're all going to be looking to see what the angles are. Well, it was Cheyenne that was taking the video. So I'm sure he, I'm sure, sure. he panned back well, and forth. A funny thing that happened that we found out afterwards, um, Randy, who was Marlea's <laughs> husband, who um, heads the drama department here at JSU, he, you know, he had his student workers and they set up the, they did fantastic, I cannot speak more highly of the JSU drama students and their work ethic and how they go about setting stuff up. Um, but they were like, they all had their headsets on, you know, because they're doing the shows and doing the sound and um, they talk to each other during shows. And so they were all on headset and we had just come out and we were talking about Claudia and like... Damn it. I keep hitting that thing. I have to move my arms. Um, and they were talking, we were talking about how she was haunted. And as soon as we said she was haunted, like all, Randy said, all of the drama students like freaked the fuck out because they were like, what the fuck are they doing bringing a haunted doll into a haunted theater? That was so funny. <laughs> He's like, like they- all of a sudden it went silent and they were like, they did not bring a haunted doll into a haunted theater. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yes, we did. So, Claudia. Claudia, I hope she showed your stuff during the, the video. That Maybe I, we should. Should we take her to Montgomery? I don't know. Should we? Mm. I mean, that means we have to keep her in mean, the house with us overnight, too. Overnight, not and she'd have to ride with us in the car. Yeah. <sighs> That's a maybe. That is a maybe. We'll see. The other, the other one that was left over from our filming... Who I was calling Nicole, but now I don't really care what her name is. That's probably not good. Like, I don't like that name anymore. I just, so she's no name doll. Um, I oh, said yeah, at one doll. point, I said at one point that the cat wouldn't touch her. I think mm-hmm. I may have said it during the live show that the right. cat was like jumping over her. That's gone. No. The cat has torn her entire hair off. <gasps> oh my God. I keep on finding her on the floor in the morning and it's not because she's haunted. It's because she's apparently a lot of fun to knock around. So... I may just toss her. I don't know what I'm. I'm really. I still think it may be bad juju to toss a doll like that into the trash, regardless of where it came from. I don't know what to do with her. But now I feel like bad returning her to anything because she has no hair. I could hot glue her wig back on. Anyway, if you have ideas on what I should do with her, and it's not going to be doll in the hall. I I can't. I think that's a spectacular idea, by the way. I love the doll in the hall, but I can't do it to my kids. Yeah, you have to have special 
children that can handle that sort of trauma. <laughs> I have one. I have one that can. I think like I would have too much fun trying to get them to believe it, I think is mm-hmm. the problem. So I think I may be the issue here. But also I do think both of my children are capable of eventually somehow turning this around on me. And yes. I'm just not willing to step into that trap. So <laughs> it'll be years of years of like, it's like every year to scare mom. Right? So yeah, I, I don't think I want to start the war. Whew. Anyway. Yeah, well, is that oh, it? Shit. Yeah. I'm uh I'm first. Am I first? No, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll go first. Okay, you go first. That's fine. This is a story, it's new actually. It's a fairly like recent happening. So um I haven't gone the murder route re- recently. So anyway, oh. that's that's kinda the route that I'm going down. <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Every fucking time. Every fucking time. So like I've I've mentioned probably a billion times on the show that uh, I didn't grow up in Virginia, but I kind of grew up in Virginia. I moved there when I was in the fifth grade. And um, I always was an outdoorsy kid. So when I moved to the South, that really resonated with me is just like kind of how naturally outdoorsy a lot of activities and people and things can be like, you know, a lot of it is hunting, which I don't do. But I fish and I hike and I always did that kind of stuff growing up. So we would always go back behind my house and walk around to the reservoir and, you know, we would go fishing there. I always went hiking where I shouldn't hike and climbing where I shouldn't climb. Like we went to Great Falls Park all the time through high school and climbed the rocks that we weren't allowed to be on. We like I, I loved going camping. I've always loved that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm, I like perfectly fine not showering for three days in a row. Like that kind of stuff is just right up my alley. Um, I, I am too, but I want to be in air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah. Now is not the great time to be saying right? this because in 90 degrees, ain't nobody like 100 degrees. Nobody wants to be out there doing this. But um, so I still do a lot of woods wandering, and I do it by myself, like fairly often. I mean, I'll just, you know, I would just feel like I need it. You know, the first day of fall usually hits me when the temperature hits a certain point and I just leave town and go somewhere to, we have a lot of amazing, we have, you know, Chiha State Park and um, Little River Canyon and DeSoto. We've got a lot of really great hiking and camping places around here mm-hmm. that are beautiful. And so I'll just take off right. and, and, and go hiking by myself. Oh, yeah, this area is amazing for oh, outdoor. Yeah. Like, we are a secret. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's, here. it's everywhere. It There's so much stuff to do. Gorgeous. And it's gorgeous. So, mm-hmm. but, and I never, it never even crossed my mind that this would be considered problematic by anybody else. <laughs> that I was like, you know, and I would take pretty regular, like, two to three day trips. And, you know, usually when I'm by myself, I don't overnight tent camp, but, you know, I'll just get like a cheap ass motel room in one of the parks and spend three days by myself at a state park hiking and then coming home and cooking and getting up early and hiking. And until people started to say like, does that never like make you nervous? And I was like, it had not even seriously, not even crossed my mind that anyone would think that this was a dangerous activity. But like I started sharing it with certain people who were just like, you're crazy. Like <laughs> who does this? Like nobody goes out and this is really not a safe activity for you to do. And I was like, I just, it just never, a, a really just never like crossed my mind right? that yeah. this wasn't something I could just do. 
So that's kind of the way that my mind works. Mm -hmm. And I have thought multiple times about trying to hike the Appalachian Trail. There's there's a trail um, in here, the Penhody Trail, which is more local to us here in Alabama. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that I've thought about hiking, but I've never been like a multi-day tripper. Cause like I said, I don't usually tent, tent camp alone. Right. I guess that is a thing. I never really thought about it as far as safety, but I just like, it just didn't sound appealing to me, right. I guess. Um, but I've thought about doing the Appalachian trail and I have friends who've done it, um, at least in sections right. and, you know, lots of people from all over the country come to hike the Appalachian trail. And it's not like, I guess it's technically not uniquely Southern. It starts in Florida. It's more than 2000 miles long. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I said it starts in Florida. It starts in Georgia, in the Georgia mountains. And it goes up to Maine. It's like right outside of Atlanta where it starts, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not far from. And then you go through the mountains of Georgia up through um, Tennessee, North Carolina, up through Virginia. Right. And um, so the, the Appalachian Trail has been in place since 1937. And... Like thousands of people hike the trail every year. Well, no, that's actually not true. There are millions of people, I think. Wait, I have stats somewhere, but I'm already <laughs> 95% of the way through this drink. So I'm just going to focus on my paper. There's a large number of people. That Lots use. of people come from across the country to hike the Appalachian Trail in sections, but not a whole lot. of. I think there may only be like 200,000 people who have ever hiked the entire thing. Well, 200,000 is still a really huge number. But since 1937. Still. It is a lot of people right. to hike 2,000 miles. I can't count that high. Um, <laughs> you eating your drunk blueberries now. Mm-hmm. The, um, so the Appalachian Trail, you know, a, a lot of people do do it, but it is very much a niche thing to do. Mm-hmm. So there is really a definite community that you gotta, focuses on the trail. Right, because you're going to be gone for like a month or two. Yeah. So you have to have your affairs in order and be able to take off work that long. You've got to have your stuff together. Um, the, there's kind of unspoken, um, like, I guess laws. There are unspoken guides and rules to how you behave on the trail. Right. How you behave with other people, what you do. And it's actually a very giving community. The people who are hiking the Appalachian Trail, or the, you can call it the AT, a lot of people do, mm-hmm. um, they... Um, they go out of their way to help each other. You don't say no to somebody who needs something right. on the trail. Um, so you work with each other, you share things with each other. They, I mean, they're like hipsters and hippies and survivalists and retirees and doctors and lawyers all use this trail and do this hike, um, who will hike like a hundred miles or more at a stretch. Mm-hmm. Most, you know, you don't generally hike from the beginning to the end, right. but people do it in sections. So along the trail, there'll be shelters. If you're not familiar with camping and hiking very much at all, um, you know, you, you will set up like tent camps at various points up and down the trail. But there are also shelters that are they're kind of like three sided shacks. They're raised up off the ground and they have a floor mm-hmm. so that you can set your um and this is the way it is on on a lot of longer trails like this, so that you can set your sleeping bag up off the ground. Right. You don't have to set up your entire tent or anything like that. So mm-hmm. people use those as stopping points mm-hmm. through the trail. Um, and there are log books at trailheads all up and down the Appalachian Trail where you can sign in and leave notes for other people who are traveling at the same time. So it's not just like, a, hey, I was here. It's like, hey, these are the things I've seen. Take a look at this. Look out for this. Right. You know, the, there's like a tree down on trail number whatever, you mm-hmm. know, or color whatever. Um, 
and you can go to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy and you can sign up in advance to do um, a through trail, which is if you if you say you're going to go from point A to point B or from the beginning to the end, you can um, register to coordinate with other hikers who might be doing the same sections at the same time as you, mm-hmm. but it's not required. Right. Um, <clears throat> so the people who go from the beginning to the end, they're called through hikers. And um, Ronnie Sanchez was one of these people who decided he was going to do this. He was 43 years old. Um, he was a Southern California native. He had spent 16 years in the army and he had served three tours in Iraq as an engineer. Um, he discharged in 2011 and came home with PTSD mm. and suffered some pretty severe depression after this point, you know, like so many people do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he, to where he just really sat around, ate junk food, played video games all the time and did anything he could to avoid being with people. Right. And um, Veterans Affairs had recommended that he move to Oklahoma City because the VA had a whole lot of like recreation programs there that were for vets to help them. Um, recover and heal for, from PTSD. So he did what they asked and he moved to Oklahoma city and he kind of figured out, okay, so he started doing everything. He did horseback riding, cycling, he did dragon boat racing. He was already a hiker. Um, and he realized these things really did help. Like if, and, and any of us who have suffered from depression before it's, Right. It's almost universally true right. that if you can get to that point where you can force yourself to do a little bit more with your body, right. that will help. That'll help you chemically. Yes, you know, this will help you. Yeah. And so, you know, this, this made a big difference in his life and he kind of, it became the thing that he did. Right. So he decided after realizing how much this was helping him, he was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to try and hike the whole Appalachian trail. And, um, You'd be surprised, I guess. I, I was surprised, anyways. How many veterans do this as a healing process? There, are, oh, wow. there's a there's a know. big number of veterans who decide, and it does kind of makes it's a mission oriented thing. Well, that's true, that's and it's true. a very difficult thing to do. It's that actually plays to the skills that they have. A lot of structure to it as yeah. well, and so calming. And so, you know, if you don't go out in the woods very often, if you don't go out in the mountains and hike very often, I mean, there's there's a special kind of soundlessness that you get mm-hmm. that. Um, makes a lot of difference in the way that you think. Right. Especially if you have a busy mind. Yeah, definitely. Yes. And that's a huge problem, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it you know, if, especially if you do it day and day and day and day, mm-hmm. um, it can be really calming and healing. Right. Um, so he, like a lot of other people went on this trek as with a purpose. And, um, so he started his through hike in February of this year. <clears throat> of this year? Of 2019. Holy shit. This is really recent. Huh? It is. Oh, man. Um, so he had had a lot of, as a result of his time in the military, I guess he had had a lot of surgeries on his knees and his shoulders. Mm. And so it was pretty painful for him to do this hike. Um, and when he got to North Carolina, he stopped at a hostel and he was like, I really don't know that I can, I don't know that I can do this whole thing. And the guy that owned the hostel, his name was Colin Gooder. He um, sat down with him. And again, this is, kind of the way the trail works like people Mm -hmm. who hike the trail help each other hikers help each other and this guy was in that community and he was like listen give yourself a break you know not everybody can do this from nobody can do it from point a to point z Mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way so just take a break and he gave him a job at the hostel for a while and said stay here for three weeks i'll pay you you work for me 
he taught him Tai Chi. He taught him how to level his knees oh, and balance himself damn. when he walked. And so he was like, okay, you, you, you know, you're good. You can do this. And right. so he kind of gained his energy back. And in, um, it was like the end of February, he, um, started back on the trail and, um, he made it 545 miles by May. It was early, early wow. in May. And he had gotten into Southwestern Virginia. Um, so when you hike on the Appalachian Trail, a lot of people go by like, it's funny, but it's, you kind of go by code names. Mm -hmm. So, um, they had examples in some of the articles that I find. There was one guy who was called Scepter because he had a walking stick that he had carved a mm -hmm. certain way. Um, there was someone who was named Axolotl because it was the name of a salamander. She loves to swim. And so it was, it's like a, an aquatic salamander. Um, and so, uh, Ronnie Sanchez started being called stronghold. Everybody who ran into him on the trail talked about how kind he was. He would stop and chat with everybody. He was really, really compassionate. He was always really helpful. Um, and so his nickname became stronghold. Um, so around the same time, somebody else is starting to wander around the trail. There's a 30 year old guy named James Jordan. He's from Massachusetts originally. And his name was, uh, sovereign was a lot of people were calling him. Um, that was me breaking to take a drink. Um, they called him sovereign because he acted like he owned the trail. Oh shit. Um, hikers who encountered him started to get really worried about him, like, mm. and about themselves. Mm -hmm. And there were a whole bunch of encounters in the early part of this year. So one hiker had said he had seen him five to 10 times over several weeks. Um, there was, uh, you know, every time he sees him, he had kind of weird erratic behavior. He had a dog that he kept with him, um, that he hiked with and, and stayed with. Um, one time this guy said that Jordan had a dog bowl and he accused these campers of stealing it from him. And then he started yelling at everybody, like trying to start a fight with them, pretending like they had stolen something from oh him. Oh God. Um, and he, he just yelled at this group of people. This was early April and I hate yellers. I know. And all, I, I mean, he just yellers. like, he, he kind of like abused them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but the guy was just like, I couldn't go to sleep that night. Like yeah. I just had a picture of this guy in my head and oh, yeah. really freaking concerned me. Absolutely. So these log books that are up and down the trail start filling up with cautions about this weird guy mm. named Sovereign who's wandering around. Um, so Hikers said he was often aggressive. One person at one point said that he had threatened to rip his own dog's leg off and eat them if other hikers didn't do what he asked. What? Um, yeah. What the fuck? He told people that he was off his meds, but he needed to be. <gasps> he, he told people he was off his meds ding, on, ding, ding. on his own, like, oh volition. Oh, my God. Which seems to be the key to this entire thing. Yes. Um. <clears throat> And by the way, there's, we're not going to get much background information on this guy. I've looked, yeah. um, not carefully, but I've looked. Right. So, um, online forums that are for the trail hikers, um, said that near hot springs, North Carolina, he arrived one night when a whole bunch of people had settled down into one of these shelters. Um, he jumped in and like shoved his knife into a sleeping bag. Oh my he God. He had burned a log book where people had written cautions about him, um, he, uh, oh, he poured alcohol on somebody's campfire to fan the flames up and threatened to burn their tents. Um, you know, he's doing all this kind of stuff. 
Um, he would stand at, there's this narrow opening called the Devil's Fort Gap that's at the Tennessee-North Carolina border. And he would stand in the opening with his knife and say, you can't get through without the password. Mm. Um, oh, fuck. And he chased people at, like, he'd chase people with shovels. He'd So he had actually been um, arrested at one point in April, but the state had not been able to press charges against him because the people that he had attacked they were on the trail and they didn't want to postpone their hike to go to court. Uh And so, uh, that was one of the, so, and he had been arrested for like numerous things. He had pot, he had a fake ID. He was publicly drunk. Um, you know, he was threatening other people and, but he was let off because, you know, nobody came to speak against him. Right. Um, so like, He reached um, Damascus, Virginia in early May. And there there are these people called the Angels of the Trail that basically go out of their way to provide extra help to people on the trail. So they, like, provide them meals and invite them for dinner and, you know, give them extra medicines and things like that. And a couple of people had noticed this guy and they'd said – they'd gone up to him and they'd said, listen – this is not where you belong. Right. Like you're you need not to get right your fucking meds. Here's mm-hmm. a pharmacy. And so they had, what they had done is they had gotten him a bus ticket and they had said, listen, we will get your dog on. Bless their heart. Well, you know, but you, you can't stay here. So, yeah. you know, tell us where you want to go. We bought him a bus ticket, put him on the bus. Two stops later, he gets off and comes back. Oh, motherfucker. So, um, and the night that the, the last group of angels had fed him dinner, he had told someone that, Let's see. He called the hikers the mountain people, and he said that the mountain people were being threatened by infiltrators who were trying to steal their instruments and that he was oh, there to protect shit. the mountain people. Like, he was completely delusional. He, yeah. He, he, yeah, he was definitely off his meds. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then and on May 5th, he was in town. Um, this was still in Tennessee, right before he got into Virginia. Um, a guy who owned a gas station had seen him there. He's dressed in camouflage. He had his dog. His dog was wearing like a, a, a helper dog vest, I think, a mm-hmm. service vest. Um, and so he started, you know, the guy who owned the gas station started talking to him, thought he was a veteran because he had this tattoo on his arm that made it look like he was a veteran. Um, so the guy went in and bought him a sandwich and water because like Jordan was eating out of a dumpster basically. Right. And, you know, so he stood there and gave him the stuff and he, you know, tried to talk to him and Jordan started saying like, I'm part of a special force. I'm a suburban assassin and my target drives a large white truck, which is the truck that this guy who owns the gas station had just pulled up in and he said i need to kill my target and open two gates to start the situation <gasps> and so this guy this gas station owner yeah, like what okay the fuck do you do walks inside and in calls 911 yeah which is what you do yeah do. that is what you do they right? couldn't do anything though yeah that's because what I'm he hadn't the police couldn't do anything because he hadn't actually done, done anything any, oh right so um you know later he was evicted from a hostel it just all kinds of stuff had happened with this guy um but again, this is, it's a specific community. So not all this is being reported. That was probably the only 911 call that they got outside of that one arrest. I mean, it was like, There's nothing it was just do. one of those things yeah. that it, they couldn't really do much. 
Um, so anyway, we're back with, with Ronnie Sanchez on May 10th. He joined up with three other hikers, which is something that pretty, pretty frequently happens. Like if you're hiking by yourself and other people are kind of going in your direction, you run into each other, you stay together for a little while. Um, because it's lonely, you know, if you're the only person out there. And this was not far from the Tennessee, North Carolina line in uh, Mount Rogers area of Southwest Virginia. Um, so while they're starting to head towards, you know, it's starting to get towards dusk and they run into this man on the trail who's acting disturbed. He's mm-hmm. got a guitar. He's singing. He's being really weird. Right. And so they kind of start walking a little faster. They go a little farther north on the trail and they set up camp around midnight, a little after midnight. Somebody comes outside their campsite coming up to their tents, making noises and saying that he's going to pour gasoline on their tents and burn them all inside. Oh, my God. So the four of them, like, decide that they're going to break camp and leave because they're, you know, it's like the middle of the night. But they can't stay here with this dude threatening them. Right. So um, it's like 2.30 a.m. And they start to come out of their campsites and they're trying to verbally get this guy to walk away. Mm-hmm. They're starting to break up camp and he pulls out a machete. Oh, shit. So the people that Ronnie Sanchez is with, there's this one couple that's together and there's a single woman. And the couple just breaks off and takes off north up the trail. Right. And um, Jordan chases them north up the trail and they call 911 about 2.30 in the morning when this is happening. Though, you know, nature's spectacular, but it's got shitty cell phone service. Right. So I was going to say, it's amazing that they could even get 911. It really kind of is. Um, so he he chases them, but they're faster than him. Eventually, he, he gives up. Mm-hmm. And back at the campsite, Ronnie is still with this other hiker. The, and, the single female? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jordan comes back to the campsite. And he starts yelling at Ron and this woman. And, you know, one of the things that the guy who had owned that that hostel that took Ron in for a while said that, you know, that he would be the one who was trying to save people. Mm-hmm. He said that, you know, if somebody if God asked somebody to raise their hand and volunteer to save everybody else on the trail, Ron would have been the guy to raise his hand. And so the assumption is like Ron was trying to put himself in between this woman and this guy, he was trying to calm him down. He was trying to deescalate the situation. Right. That is not going to happen with this extremely mentally unwell dude. Mm-hmm. So he takes out this knife and starts to stab Ronnie in the chest. Oh, my God. And the female hiker, when she sees him fall, she takes off running in the other direction. Jordan gives up on Ronnie and chases after her. Holy shit. Ronnie's called SOS on his phone, Mm -hmm. which there are certain, there are emergency procedures that you can follow on the Appalachian trail and they've actually beefed them up since this happened. But, um, so he had sent an SOS. Um, and this woman is like, she turns, she gets into the woods, but she's like, he's going to catch me. She turns around and raises her hands up in the air and he just goes, he just digs into her and starts stabbing her. Holy fuck. But she has the presence of mind to pretend that he's already killed her. So he does stab her several times, but she lays in the brush like she's dead. And eventually he gets up and walks away. So she stumbles up, goes quietly, as quietly as she can, having been stabbed multiple times, south on the trail. And she finds this other couple of campers who are there and tells them what happened. And they take her and hike with her six miles back to the nearest trailhead to tell people what's happened. 
And there are two other hikers who they run into on the way that actually like get up and run their asses to the county sheriff. Like they run from the trail to, to let people know what's happened. So it's still that community of like, everybody's going to do something like nobody's just going to let this happen. Right. Um, so, um, after Jordan goes to the site, he actually goes to another campsite and starts threatening other people. He's like, give me your flashlight. And they won't get out of their tents. Like they don't even see him. Um, but, uh, the sheriffs do come, uh, they find Ron's body around 7am. Unfortunately, he died of his wounds and Jordan was not far away. They had blood sniffing dogs and they found, um, Jordan not, not too far from where he was. Um, so there was a vigil for Ronnie Sanchez at, it was like right before this annual um, Appalachian Trail Days Festival. Right. What what time? I mean, what day are we talking about? Like, how recent was this? This was like May 11th of this year. Wow. So they had this Appalachian Trails Day Festival. They had a special vigil for Ronnie Sanchez. And, you know, one of the things that came of this... Oh, so anyway, they did arrest Jordan. They brought him in um, just July 15th. Um, a federal judge in Southwest Virginia found that he was... Um, incompetent to stand trial right obviously and it was very much an at this time like it sounded like it was something that might improve over time and they were not going to let him off the hook like they're going to bring him back in right but that's where that stands now because it just really sounds like he was he needed to be medicated he needed to be medicated and he needed supervision because obviously he could not maintain himself. Yeah. I mean, that was like total schizophrenic Holy, break kind of yeah, shit. It, yeah, absolutely. Um, so fucking horrifying. But one of the really inspiring things about researching this though, was that there are these, um, Facebook pages. There's one called the hikers yearbook and there were all these tributes to him. Like they, they sent the news out down the wire really quickly to let people know. And, so many people had posted pictures like Ronnie, you know, they posted pictures of him with their dog and said, my dog always loved him when we right. ran into him and all these people saying these beautiful things and people set up, you know, little memorials all up and down the trail for him. Um, and just like really beautiful things that people had said about him. So that was really, I mean, it was, it's a horrible story and it's a really sad story, but it's also really I don't know. Encouraging. encouraging. Yeah. Because that's a community that they don't just, you know, they don't just let shit like this happen. Right. You know, it just doesn't lie. And I wanted to say too, this is funny because I told you before we started that the reason that you're like jazz Chad remembered mm-hmm. that what I was doing this week was because he took a personal interest in it. Right. Cause I texted him that I was going to do this Appalachian trail murder. And he was like, well, that made me rethink my Appalachian Trail running plan that I was kind of considering. (laughs) Of course, I'm going camping with my kids in like two weeks, like survivalist camping. So I was like, yeah, I don't know why I'm doing this either. (laughs) But um, one one of the stats was deaths along the Appalachian Trail are so rare and killings are even rarer that um, two to three million people hike all or part of the trail every year. 
And there was only there have only been 10 reported murders in 45 years of record keeping. So wow. statistically, you're more likely to die texting right. than you are to die on the Appalachian Trail. Right. Um, it's just a little bit more horrifying when you have a crazy person chasing yeah. you to kill you. Yeah. Right. But keep that in mind. Yes. One in 20 million. Those are your chances are of your dying odds. on the Appalachian Trail. So I'm keeping that in mind also. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, so I took from I actually took from that a really heartwarming, you know, which I. I hope that anybody who had passed away this way would hope that, you know, would appreciate, right. you know, that that's the message that comes from this is that he was this really awesome person and this horrible thing happened. But he but saved that community. girl's life. He sa- yeah. It yeah. sounds like he probably saved somebody's life and, mm-hmm. you know, like life well lived. So cheers. Right. Cheers. All right. All right. We'll Sorry. be back. No, <laughs> I was just, uh, yeah, that's, that's tough. Mental mental health, the whole stop taking pills. That's that's tough. Yeah, and I can say more about that on the after show too. Yeah. I have a couple other things. Yeah, but... I have a story as well. Okay, so we'll be back in a little bit. All right, bye bye. The Goat House Beer Garden in Montgomery is our favorite place to go when we're in Alabama's capital. Whether it's to do a show, to visit a dilapidated movie set, or to flip off the governor's mansion. <laughs> So I was talking to James, and he was telling me that the Goat House highlights local artists, singer-songwriters, makers, chefs, brewers, and entrepreneurs of all types, just like the Strange South, mm-hmm. big supporter. They intentionally support only original content because they believe that communities begin, grow, and sustain when creatives and entrepreneurs thrive. It's a great atmosphere, great company, and a lot of fun. And it's less than 10 minutes from Hank Williams' grave, which is haunted. So next time you go to say hi to old Hank, stop by the Goat House Beer Garden. They are delicious. Snack time's good. We, yeah, we just kind of took an extended long period so that I could eat like half a bag of chips, of mm-hmm. voodoo chips. Me too, voodoo chips. So if you don't know about voodoo chips, oh my God. And we will say in the middle of the break, too, that we have just found out breaking news. This happened a week ago to you, but (laughs) breaking news to us. There are only 15 tickets left for the Montgomery Toe. So if you're interested in going to the Goat House, which by itself is worth a trip because it's going to be super fun and it's an awesome place to go. uh, Get them now. The Eventbrite. uh, We'll repost the Eventbrite anyways this week, but the Eventbrite is already on our page and our fan page. So take a look at that. Yes. 15 tickets. Get y'all's now. All right. So. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all, I picked this and it really deserves way more time than I gave it. Um, And honestly, it is so like intriguing to me that I definitely, you know, past me telling probably a really shitty version of this um it definitely needs like go look it up go investigate it um buy the book you know watch all the things because i'm doing an unsolved murder mystery and uh southwestern louisiana this is exciting, though, because I'm like, you're giving us a gift right now because this is going to be something that we can then be like, oh, I'm going to go down and look yes, at all these things. This you will definitely go like once I started really getting into this because at surface level, I thought, oh, well, this is just a thing. And I kept reading it. And I was like, oh, shit, 
There are so many moving parts. There's so much going on that I seriously, like, I had to visually organize it. And I really thought about doing me, like, one of those walls that you see on TV where it's like <laughs> pictures and names and yarn linking things to people and stuff. Because this is totally that case. This is the Jeff Davis 8. <gasps> Have you heard about it? I looked it up one time. Did you? It's on my list, but I never looked into it more than just the first Wikipedia. So, yes, oh, this is awesome. My God. I mean, it's not. It's horrible. No, it, it's horrible. But you're going to tell a good story. Well, thank you for the confidence. So I first found this through a Rolling Stone article um, talking about Ethan Brown, who is a journalist or was a journalist. Again, I have not, again, done my duty research kind of <laughs> stuff uh, for New Orleans. He was a, a journalist um, for New Orleans, maybe still is, who knows. But he wrote this book called Murder in the Bayou. And it is about um, eight sex workers who have been murdered uh, in the bayou and their case hasn't been solved yet. Mm -hmm. So I started reading. So the Rolling Stone article, which is like really good, is it touches on the murder, but it's more about, um, you know, Ethan Brown's book and how he looked into this and like all the time he dedicated into trying to figure out um, this unsolved murder uh, that's like west of New Orleans, like mm -hmm. between New Orleans and Houston. Um, because who's going to spend that much time for sex gonna, workers? Right. Who's yeah. going with well, sex workers? And because it just never seemed to get resolved. Mm -hmm. So what I am going to do, um, before he wrote the book, and this kind of happened around the time that True Detective came out. And I was just going to ask about that. So everybody was like really like True Detective, like the first uh, season came out and it was about like Louisiana in that area, serial mm -hmm. killer and all the, these things going on. And it really captured like the feel of the dirty South mm -hmm. and of, you know, this area. And then we have like this real life mystery going on in this area. That's so much deeper than what a lot of the true detective was about. Wow. It's crazy. It's just some batshit crazy y'all. Um, but what he did, like right when that came out, he wrote this article for medium.com, mm -hmm. which I love that website. I do too. So much good information. So honestly, because it's so complicated and there's so many different people, I mean, I've got sticky notes with, I mean, there's so many names. I, there's, I like to try to like sometimes condense things down and simplify it. And there's just no fucking way I'm going to be able to do that with this. So I am just going to pull on pieces from this article and try not to confuse the shit out of anybody, much less myself. Um, but what this is, like I said, hold on, let me get my little sticky note coming up. It's eight uh, sex workers who were murdered between uh, 2005 and 2009 in this area. And it started with, uh, basically, in May, 20, May 20th, 2005, um, Jerry Jackson, who was just fishing, found a body in one of the canals um, in Jennings, uh, Louisiana, so which is southwest Louisiana. 
And he thought he had heard like in the news that there was a bunch of mannequins that had been stolen. So he like thought maybe somebody was just being a dipshit and threw them in the canal. <laughs> and, and that's what he was seeing. But he said it wasn't until he saw like the flies that he knew oh. that it was like a real body and not just a mannequin. Ugh. So he called 911, and it ended up being 28-year-old Loretta Lynn Chasen Lewis, um, a local sex worker. So, y'all, I'm just going to tell you right now, these eight women um, that we're going to talk about, that really their case needs to be solved. And actually, I think uh, Ethan really has a good handle on it uh, as far as what's happening and I think a lot was revealed in the book so Murder in the Bayou by Ethan Brown um, you need to read this hopefully um, it'll clear up a lot of things but again nobody's been arrested there's nobody that's been prosecuted for this but this happened so this was the first woman that that has been found and the reason like I'm gonna say their name is consists of like two or three names um because it becomes important later on. Okay. But that makes it even more confusing. Yeah. Like, I'm seriously, I had to write this down. It's like reading down. a Russian novel. Yes. I, like, I had to write it down to make sure I, I wasn't confusing anybody. So, like I said, between 2005 and 2009, bodies of seven or more women were discovered in the swamps and canals that were around Jennings, um, which is a staggering number of bodies um, for a town of about 10,000 people. Mm. So it's like a really small town, but like an extraordinary amount of murders happening. Um, Lewis was the, uh, along with Lewis, the victims were Ernestine Mary Daniels Peterson, who was 30, Kristen Gary Lopez, who was 21, Whitney Dubois, who was 26, LaSonia Muggy Brown, who was 23, Crystal Shea Benoit, 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 maybe? Ben, Ben, Bennett, no, Benoit, sorry, Zeno. That name really doesn't matter. I mean, these, they all have like three or four names. Um, And again, I'm not really sure why some of these are nicknames. Some of them are like married and remarried names. And then Brittany Gary, she was, oh, sorry, Crystal was 24. Brittany Gary um, was 17. And Nicole uh, Glory was 26. So they were known as the uh, Jeff Davis Eight. Both Patterson and Brown had their throats slit, but the other bodies, um, they were too advanced in um, decomposition because, again, southern Louisiana swamps. Yeah. Um, they had a hard time determining the death, but the coroner kind of suspected asphyxiation. Mm. Of course, the victims were uh, mired in poverty, and they said mental illness, but I think the mental illness that they were talking about was just the anxiety and depression of being poor as fuck mm. and having to survive in a world. And the world kind of that they were living in was full of sex and drugs. Mm. So they were sex workers making money so that they could buy drugs um, because there was there's nothing else for them to. I mean, there's nothing, no other life um, for them there in Jennings. So, in December 2008, a multi-agency investigation team named um, MATE, like M-A-I-T, like BAIT, but hmm. MATE, um, 
It consisted of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies um, was formed so that they could solve these killings. Because obviously, I mean, within a few years, you have eight women who are dead. Um, what year did they form that? Uh, in 2008. So three years after the first woman was found. And so in 2000, the last woman was murdered in 2009. Okay. So I think the majority, so by then seven women had been killed um, when they formed this group. And they offered a reward, $35,000 to $85,000 um, for you know name of the guilty party and stuff. But they were searching for a serial killer. So they, they thought that this was a serial killer. And this article that I'm referencing heavy um, – which is the Who Killed the Jeff uh, Davis 8 by Ethan Brown. Um, he's like giving you a majority. This article really is what he based his, his book off and where he started down the road. Um, so, you know, they started with a serial killer, but when he like looked into it and started reading um, and interviewing people, uh, you know, they were, you know, and even the New York Times like did an article saying that this was a serial killer and it was like really kind of freaking people out. And he came into this and it was, you know, it was just really things weren't adding up mm -hmm. for the serial killer um, angle on it. So uh, he basically said like from his um, investigation and stuff. He's like, the details of the Jeff Davis eight, uh, can be murky and the connections between victims and suspects and police are tangled. Um, he said his investigation, however, cast serious doubt on the theory that the Jeff Davis eight was the work of a serial killer. Hmm. He's like, because one fact was crystal clear from the get go to him, local law enforcement was far too steeped in misconduct and corruption and this extended to the task force. And he says, and this was dominated, well, he said the task force, which was dominated by detectives and deputies from the sheriff's office there. And so he said to run an investigation with the integrity that their murder women and their families deserved after nearly a decade in which no one had been brought to justice. He's like, there was too much other shit going on for this to be simply um, a serial killer. Mm. He's like, if this was the handiwork of a serial killer, um, according to the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, uh, he said that serial killings typically involve strangers with no visible relationship between the offender and the victim. He's like, however, these women, like, there's a lot of connections because they all knew each other intimately. Mm. Um, and even some of them were related. So we talked about, oh, let me pull up my little sticky notes because this is where the names come in ball stickies. So, uh, Kristen Gary Lopez, 21, who was the third victim, she was like um, an actual uh, cousin, blood cousin, which sounds weird, right, <laughs> to um, Brittany Gary, who was victim number seven and 17. Hmm. So, that's one connection there. And, um, and actually, Crystal Gary, who we just talked about as being 17, was a um, housemate with um, Brittany Gary, who was victim. So Crystal was victim number six, and Brittany, who is the cousin to uh, Lopez, was victim number seven. Mm. So those two actually wow. um, roomed together. So there was a lot of, like, they all knew each other. It was a small town. It was 10,000 people, right? Um, 
But they also knew each other because they all tricked at the um, Baudreau Inn there, which was basically um, the place to buy drugs and for sex trade in Jennings. Mm. And it was like right off like Interstate 10 between Houston and New Orleans. And so it was like a 400 mile stretch, just like, you know, between Atlanta and Birmingham, mm-hmm. you know, all the sex traffic that goes yeah. on between that. So it was just a very easy connection between these two massive cities that, you know, was set up for drugs and sex trade. Um, it says about this place, this inn that everybody went to and how they all knew each other, that the cops were there nearly nightly. Oh. And Loretta Lewis, the first victim, was the subject of several complaints to the police based on our activity in the inn. So a lot of these girls and women... Oh, they were had been like they the police knew who they were because they had been arrested multiple times mm-hmm. either on drug charges or on um prostitution so it wasn't simply that nobody knew anybody and this was like some random dude killing like all these you know unnamed prostitutes like sometimes happens like in the bigger cities where they kind of go trolling for women and you don't know who it is i mm-hmm. mean this was like a very close knit community of people it says all of all but one of the victims, uh, Ernestine Patterson, were associated with the same fixture of Jennings Underworld. And this is where it gets interesting. Well, not that, you know. Uh, there was a 58-year-old oil rig worker who turned strip club owner named Frankie Richards. Oh. So all of them had some form of association with Frankie Richard um, at some point. And when Brown went over there to, like, investigate and do his interviews and stuff, he actually became somewhat friends with this guy, Frankie Hmm. Richard. And Frankie Richards, like, felt very comfortable talking to him. And he told him, he's like, you know, when we were at our lowest points in our life, no one wanted to have anything to do with us. We had something to do with each other. And that means something to me. Them girls were my friends no matter how fucking low my life was. And I was their friend no matter how fucking low their life was. Mm. So he, you know, talking to people, you know, Brown found this connection between the girls and this um, strip club owner. And Richard described... Jennings, when the killings began, he said it was wide open. He's like the drugs, the prostitution, the bars, the crooked cops. He's like since the early 1990s, there have been nearly 20 unsolved homicides. And in that little tiny place, in that little tiny place, um, Jefferson Davis Parish. And, you know, he, he was basically it's ridiculous how like low the clearance rate was and how astonishingly high the murder murder rate was for the small area. I mean, Mm. that's, I mean, that's a huge amount of homicides for, you know, for percentage wise, for percentage wise for 10,000 people. It's like, you know, a hundred and four hundred percent, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, as far as, as far as like ratio of population to murders is way too high, right? Way too high. It's really scary when you start talking about like cricket cops and stuff. It's like they, you know, 
they know the people that are troublemakers, mm-hmm. but that means they could know the people nobody else is going to believe. Right. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's scary. Yeah. No, it, it, it gets really, it gets scarier. So, it, two men, um, Byron Chad Jones and Lawrence Nixon, a fifth, a cousin of the fifth victim, uh, Lasonia Brown, were briefly charged with secondary murder in the Aristine Patterson case. Okay. But despite several witnesses implicating them, the sheriff's office did not test the alleged crime scene until 15 months after Patterson's murder. And so they found that they... they found it failed to demonstrate the presence of blood, but it's already <laughs> been later? like, well, it's already been like over a year before they actually like went in. So, I mean, of even course a it day, has. yeah, they, <laughs> they scrubbed the fuck oh out of that place God. and they've had like, you know, so obviously there's a lot going on. So, you know, that botched crime scene um, contributed in part to the collapse of the case against the two men. And, um, and Jennings street hustlers with connection to Richard um, were suspected in the death of some other women. So not only do these women have like a close relationship and connections with each other, there's, st- he's starting to see like this connection with Richard mm. and um, the people that he associates with. Uh, so, you know, through all of this, you know, Law enforcement still was unable to unearth a credible suspect um, outside of the Jennings drug scene and the official serial, but the, but the official serial killer like uh, label narrative still persisted. Isn't so, it funny when like serial killer is the easy way to go? Right. Like, oh my God. They're spending, well, they're spending all this money and they, I think it's a lot easier probably to throw money at a task force to yeah. deal with a serial killer than it is um, to deal with corrupt cops mm. and drugs. And so the murdered women in the Jeff uh, Davis eight, basically another um, thing that they had in common is they were all informants to law enforcement at some point or oh. another. Oh my God. So, um, even then, some of the women who turned up dead were, I don't want to call them snitches, but they were informants to murders that happened to the women before them. And oh, then wow. they ended up dead. So Lasonia Brown, the fifth victim, was interrogated about the 2005 killing of Ernestine Patterson, the second victim. Wow. And then um, all of a sudden, Brown's body was spotted um so you know they found her uh let's see hold on okay here let me this is where it gets complicated i'm sorry i'm screwing this up so uh lasonia brown the victim was interrogated about the 2005 killing of iristine patterson let me look at my little cheat sheet so i can tell you so Patterson was number two. Brown was number five as far as in the murder chart that I have. So it says that, you know, uh, the reporter here, Ethan Brown, 
obtained a task force report in which one witness claims that Brown spotted the body of Loretta Lewis, the first victim, floating in the canal way before Jerry Jackson, who was the fisherman I talked about earlier on, discovered mm-hmm. her there in May. Oh, um, in 2006, the detective investigated Lewis's murder, interrogating Kristen Gary Lopez, the third, the third victim. Wow. So she knew what was going on. Uh, Lopez's mother said, and uh, she said that they were all scared. She said that they knew about it and were too scared to say, and then they ended up dead. Holy shit. So the women who were questioned in uh, uh, high-profile homicides were turning up dead all over the place in the parish, and it should immediately raise red flags Mm -hmm. among the task force investigators, right? Should. You you would think. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was another factor that made the Jeff Davis 8 victims unique. Um, they learned that all eights uh, snitched for local law enforcement about the Jennings drug trade. Oh. So there's that connection. We're going back to the drug trade connection with all the women in the sex trade business here that were murdered. Uh, yeah, this... This gets so complicated. Man. Yeah. So by the end of 2008, three bodies were found that year, bringing the total to seven. Jennings' uh, sex workers were like uh, warning the task force investigators that Nicole uh, Gilroy might be the next victim. Oh. So they're actually like, before these women are even killed, some of the sex trade workers are going, hey, this person may be next for whatever reason. And Nicole was actually victim number eight. She oh, was the, shit. She was the last victim. That's so fucked. It's, they had it figured out. Like, they knew oh, what was yeah, going on. Oh, yeah, they knew and exactly. And nobody was listening to them. And nobody was listening. Well, and, well, they were scared to speak to anybody. And because they were... We'll, we'll talk about it. Well, it'll be hopefully revealed if I don't fuck it up. Okay, <laughs> so... um. So basically, uh, let's see. I'm just reading over this. So Gilroy, um, when she was 24, she like savagely attacked a John with the handle of a sledgehammer. So she was, you know, she was pretty feisty and she racked up this like towering rap sheet that was dominated by charges that ended up somehow getting mysteriously dropped. So, you know, the, the last murder victim, you know, obviously she's full into the drug and the sex trade and something, there was something else going on. So whether she was an informant, it sounds like she may have been an informant to get the charges dropped, like she traded out or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, basically, um, when like she, her charges against her ended up in being something uh, called, I have no idea how to pronounce this. It's like null pro secu. Okay. And it's a legal term meaning uh, be unwilling to pursue uh, on the district attorney's part. So it usually says that people who end up with that are, are it's because that they snitched on somebody else mm. and um, that they did that in exchange for, um, cooperation so according to 
Frank Richard, who is the strip club owner, uh, Nicole knew a whole lot. And by a whole lot, she was always paranoid. Her mother said she was always paranoid. And so she basically knew that she was next. Mm. So she knew, you know, it got to the point, her mom was saying, where she didn't want to go out because of what she knew. And um, she stayed at home and her mom was like, you need to go out and, you know, and live and like, you know, her birthday was coming up and she was wondering why she wasn't going out for her birthday. And, uh, Nicole basically told her mom, mom, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to be here. Wow. Um, so she knew somebody was coming after her and the task force, um, there was like da, 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 four kids, place with relatives. So she already had like her kids were already taken care of. And um, a task force witness supports the claim that in her final days that she was scared of someone but would not say who and that she knew who killed the girls. Oh, my God. So in August 19th of 2009, um, her mom filled a mer- uh, missing person report on her daughter with the sheriff's office. And among one of the last people to see um, uh, Galori alive was the father. <laughs> this is where it gets so crazy. Uh, the last person to see Gilroy alive was the father of Ernestine Patterson, the second victim. Oh, my God. Yet another odd connection in a case full of them, right? The search didn't take long. Her body was discovered along a stretch of I-10 west um, near the Arcadia um, parish. So, of course, her mom believes that her daughter was murdered because, I mean, she was basically said, Mom, I'm pissing to be murdered. Yeah. And she was because of what she knew. And um, because she was witness, this is what her mom's saying. Her daughter was murdered because she was witness to local law enforcement corruption or misconduct or worse. She used to tell us all the time that it was the police killing the girls, Barbara said. Mm. We said, Nicole, uh, name She's like, Nicole, a name, something, write a letter and leave it somewhere. Let us know. We can help you. And she would say, no, Mama, it's too far gone. It's too big. I'd rather y'all not know nothing. Um, that way, nothing can happen to y'all. Uh, she knew. She knew. And that's why they killed her. Wow. So several oh, man. several family members of the murdered women um, basically told uh, Ethan... Uh, Brown, the writer here, or the interviewer here, this basically the same story. So Gail Brown, the sister of the fifth victim, uh, Lasonia Brown, told uh, Ethan that just before uh, she was killed, she wor- she worriedly informed her family that she was investigating a murder with a cop, and the cop wanted to give her $500 to tell what happened. Um, Gail also basically said that she knew it was going on or Gail, who is the sister, right? Knew what was going on. And, uh, I think a cop, it was a cop that killed her sister. Oh, wow. So this is like, and I'm not, I watched a YouTube video about uh, another, uh, somebody else covering this case. Cause I was trying to absorb as much and get everything straight in my head as much as possible. But this was like an incident where a cop, you know, she was like, uh, 
she she had this information and she was wanting to give it to like the right cops mm-hmm. and a cop was like we'll give you money for this but obviously they feel like it wasn't the right cop and and because she had like told that cop something that she knew that she mysteriously disappeared and was killed for it there shouldn't be a right cop i know oh, that's awful yes it is awful but honestly i think in this area there is no right cop mm. um from just reading this article so um Let's see. The Brown family accounts um, are corroborated by task force witness interviews. So there was like no lack of people coming forward with like information. Um, one was noted in saying that uh, Lasonia Brown told her that three police officers were going to kill her. On May 26, 2008, the night that uh, Lasonia uh family saw her last she seemed overcome with emotion getting on her knees and proclaiming to her grandmother i love you there's nothing i wouldn't do for you um and her son and you know her grandmother's obviously touched by this expression of love from her you know somewhat hard-bitten granddaughter but it like really unnerved her because she felt like she was saying goodbye to her um so all of this happened. Um, let's see. The lack of resolution in the case uh, can appear to be a result of an incompetent sheriff's department um, or more charitably a small local enforcement agencies mounting a mighty struggle to solve and possibly complex murder cases. However, you want to like pin it. Mm-hmm. It says, in reality, the law enforcement misconduct is so commonplace at both the Jennings Police Department and the Paris Sheriff's Office that both engage in a very in the very definition of what the Department of Justice calls patterns, pattern and practice, practices of unconstitutional conduct, conduct. So in other words, these law enforcement entities are not able to police themselves so they often engage in criminal acts that victimize instead of protect Jennings' own citizenry. The veterans of uh, Jennings Street, like the people who've been there forever, uh, they basically have traced the unwinding of the local law enforcement all the way back to the 70s when they said cops began getting involved in the drug trafficking. Mm. And he's... And this is not like merely gossip on the street. They say in March 2000 or March 1990, two local men burglarized the sheriff's office, making off with a staggering 300 pounds of marijuana. When the investigators interviewed one of the burglars, according to court documents, he named a surprising pair of accomplices. Frankie Richards, who who is the strip Strip club club guy, guy, and a man named Ted Gary, who was then chief deputy sheriff. Of course, no charges were brought against Richard or Gary. So three years later in 1993, Sheriff Dallas Cormier uh, pleaded guilty in federal court to one count of obstruction of justice after he was charged with crimes ranging from improper dealings with inmates to using public funds to build, to buy trucks, tires, and guns for himself. So also 
In early 1997, Dateline ran an hour-long expose on sheriff's deputies from Jeff Davis Parish and another nearby parish who made illegal traffic stops to out-of-state license plate drivers. The illegal stops had long been a problem. In 1996, a Hispanic couple sued the sheriff at the time um, in federal court after they were pulled over on I-10 without probable cause by one of the deputies. So that's kind of like, I don't know, I kind of always heard like, even though this was Louisiana, but I always kind of heard like when you go to Texas, if you're an out-of-plate tag, Mm. that, you know, you're more likely to be pulled over. Um and that kind of, even though this wasn't Texas, it was close to Texas, and that kind of corroborates that. Um, so subsequent scandals made the illegal traffic stops um, kind of seem like child's play. In 2000, Jennings police officer Phil uh, Karam shot fellow cop Kenneth Gildry <laughs> and his wife Christine to death in what? their home during an ensuing standoff with police. Karam killed one responding officer and wounded another. And then in October of 2003, eight female Jennings cops filed a civil lawsuit or civil rights lawsuit in federal courts against Jennings police chief Donald Lucky Deluche (laughs) and a gaggle of male cops and the city of Jennings allegedly widespread accounts or acts of sexual violence and harassment had been taking place. How does this shit happen? Like, that's a, I just, uh, oh my God. Uh, How does this shit keep on happening? Oh, yeah. So among the allegations and the complaints, a captain who shook his penis at female officers saying, you know, I like it. Oh, shit. You know, I like to lick pussy. I can numb it all night and forced oral sex on female officers. A lieutenant who waved a knife at a female officer warned, girl, I'll cut you. So rampant fuckery. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that, that was 2003. Who's responsible for just coming in and just wiping them off the face of the earth? (laughs) Like, somebody needs to be responsible for that. Checks and fucking balances. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, January of 2013, former Jennings police chief. um, Who the fuck wants to live around there? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're too poor to move out, that's horrible. But... And I think that's the the situation with a lot of people down there. I it's bet like that they, is. they can't they can't leave. Um, so January uh, 2013, this former Jennings police chief Johnny uh, Lyester uh, was hit with a battery of charges after a Louisiana state police audit found like uh, $4,500 in cash, 1,800 pills, and more than 380 grams of Coke and several pounds of marijuana missing from the department's evidence room. Just weeks ago, uh, he pleaded guilty to, you know, obviously fucking up (laughs) and a currently waiting sentence. Of course, this article that I'm reading, I think it's 2006, so it's several years old, or maybe 2004. Um, So it's like five years old. Or 16, 16 or 14. Yeah, I can do math, maybe. (laughs) So against all of this fucking corruption and misconduct, um, you know, 
a, what Ethan is saying here is like a veteran Jennings cop made a, a decision that would forever change the course uh, of a, his career and the Jeff Davis 8 investigation. So it says on 2007, Sergeant Jess Earing, Earing, Ewing, um, received word that two female inmates in the city jail wanted to talk about the unsolved homicides. Then the they were totaling only four mm-hmm. uh, women had been killed, and he was stunned by what he heard. Ewing, Ewing, fuck, Ewing, <laughs> said that both women told him that a high ranking that high ranking officers had been directly involved in covering up the murders. Uh, Ewing. What am I? Jess. I'm just going to call you Jess. Sergeant <laughs> Jess, because I can't fucking say your last name. Sergeant Jess um, had been long weary of his fellow cops, and he feared that the uh, audio tapes would simply vanish, just as drugs and cash had a way of disappearing in evidence or from evidence. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sergeant Jess handed the interview tapes over to a local private investigator who rushed the copies to the FBI office in nearby Lake Charles. So he was trying to, like, circumvent, mm-hmm. like, the whole corruption to make sure that these ta- these tapes, these incriminating tapes got out that were implicating corruption from the inside, right? Mm-hmm. So Sergeant Jess, you know, basically was take- was taking a gamble, trying to grab the attention of the feds, but it backfired. Shit. The tapes ended up right back with the sheriff's office, dominated task force, and Sergeant Jess feared retaliation. Like He was fearing retaliation, and and it turned out to be justified because the parish district attorney charged him with not only malfeasance Mm -hmm. of office, but also sexual misconduct. What? So he said that one of the women, female inmates, claimed that Jess had touched her inappropriately during the interview, which he denied, and the charges were dismissed. So that sounded like somebody was leaning on one of the women yeah. to say something. So, um, basically, uh, you know, this guy who was trying to make a difference and trying to, like, take it outside of the corruption was fired. And he said when um, Ethan Brown went in and interviewed him, like, you know, he'd been, uh, Sergeant Jess had been like 20 years on the job and he felt screwed for doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, and so he said the contents of the interview tapes have never before been made public. He's like, uh, Ethan actually listened to them in their entirety and they provide highly specific information about the murders of two of the sex workers, Whitney Dubois and Kirsten Gary Lopez, as well as local local law enforcement al- alleged role in covering up Frankie Richards' role in at least one of the killings. Wow. Um, and y'all... I mean, we need to like take a breather. I almost feel like this could be a toothpaste. We're only like not even halfway through this. Oh my shit. God, really? Yeah. Um, uh. He said one of the first inmates spoke about the night that Dubois died in 2007. And she claimed that um, Tracy Chasson, who was another sex worker, had told her that she was there the night that Richard and his niece. Hannah Connor killed Dubois, mm-hmm. that they had been getting high. And when Dubois refused Richard's sexual advantage, 
advances. Um, he got aggressive and started fighting with her. And when she started fighting back, he got on top of her and started punching her. And then um, Chason said that his niece held her head back and drowned her. Whoa. So, um, yeah. And then uh, Chason had made a similar confession to detectives at the parish sheriff's office about Lopez, about the Lopez murder. Um, and had been charged as an accessory after the fact and second degree murder said that Lopez uh, was perhaps the most vulnerable of the Jeff Davis eight because she was 21 and she was, um, they say he says here intellectually, you know, disabled. And so, um, Lopez considered actually considered Richard a father figured to her and used to call him uncle Frankie. And, um, he admitted that he had spent a, a portion. So when, uh, Brown was interviewing him. Uh, Frankie Richard uh, admitted to him that he had spent a portion of the last two weeks of Lopez's life with her and Tracy Chasson because they were partying and renting a motel room and probably doing a lot of drugs. But he claimed that he suspected them of stealing from him and threw them out. And um, he told he told Brown that you know Kristen had come up to him and giving him a hug and called him uncle Frankie. So it sounds like Richard here is kind of like setting up like his alibis, mm. like, you know, we partied and stuff, but then they just kind of left. And yeah, this I, is why my fingerprints are here. I never saw. Yeah. I never saw her again. So, um, Chason, who was with them told a similar story to investigators at first, but according to the homicide file in her second interrogation, she broke down into tears describing what she now says has been that Richard and Connor had on their drug idol night killed Lopez in a fit of anger, beating her severely by a levee near a canal on the outskirts of Jenning and then drowned her. So, you know, wow. yeah. So she changed the story and um, that confession corroborated with the fact that Lopez's body was recovered floating in that canal. And it led to both Richard and Connor being charged with second degree murder the second inmate corroborated Chasen's story, claiming that Hannah Connor had confessed her guilt while high on crack. So that was like basically the tape that Sergeant Jess was trying to get put out, saying like, "Hey, look, we've got like what initially was said, and then two, you know, several people corroborating that no, this is actually what's happened, and, mm-hmm. and a fucking confession, basically." Um. They also, uh, the two inmates tape told a story about a truck and about a conspiracy between Richard and a top sheriff's office investigator that destroyed the evidence in the Lopez case. So Richard, the second inmate said, put Lopez's body in a barrel and used a truck to transport it. And the truck was later purchased by an officer named Mr. Warren. Um, she didn't know like his exact name, but he bought the truck and to discard of the evidence. And by Warren, the inmate meant Sheriff Officer Chief Criminal Investigator Ugh. Warren Gary, who... Um, also was spoken of by the first inmate of Lopez's body and the truck and the officer um, named Warren. So basically 
this shit happened. Uh, they just, somebody disposed, whether it, it was the officer or it was Richard or one of Richard's associates disposed of Lopez's body. And then immediately, you know, after they knew this, they couldn't go get the truck as evidence because Warren had already bought the truck and um, obviously cleaned the truck and got it washed out. I mean, like everybody in fucking town knew that this, knew that something that this truck that was evidence um, had been taken to be clean and was bought by this officer. And they even knew like the car wash they took it to. And they said that um, there was blood on the inside of the truck. Um, Oh my God. So yeah, it was just, it's just so much shit. I mean, and he has records. One of the good things that Ethan Brown uh, was talking about when he was writing this article, which later turned into the book, he's saying, you know, the reason I know so much of this is because Louisiana, Louisiana state law has like this really open public records. Like you, anybody can like go look at like public records of what's going on. It was very easy for him to see. And, you know, at least what they told the truth on, you know, he could go dig it up, um, which was like, which was good, which led to a lot of like what he found here. Oh, sorry. I'm just kind of getting lost (laughs) in this whole art. So we're talking about like, you know, this guy buying this truck and then he, he bought it for like $8,000 and then he resold it for like um, $15,000 and it's just all really crooked. And uh, the purchase of the truck, obviously, was possibly illegal and definitely um, unethical. And he was fined $10,000 by the Louisiana Board of Ethics. <laughs> so he's $5,000 positive then right? on the sale. Oh, my gosh. Jesus. So, and he said buying from... Or, uh, the sheriff at the time, or the former sheriff, said buying from an inmate, that w- uh, that's what was ethically wrong, he insisted. But he had no clue that the truck was even part of the evidence in the Lopez case. Uh, yeah. And that didn't come out until way after the fact. Oh, my God. So, you know, there's just so much shit. And I'm, y'all, I'm just scrolling. <laughs> I'm scrolling. This kind of thing is so frustrating. It is so frustrating. So, and of course, uh, Ethan Brown, he says, to put simply, he says, the statements from the two female inmates portrayed Richard and his associates, associates working for the sheriff's office to dispose of evidence in the Lopez case. Yet the sergeant who took the statement was forced off his job and the allegations were ignored by law enforcement. Uh, Warren Gary, on the other hand, was promoted to run the fucking evidence room after all this shit happened. He's got coke for life. Yes. Coke and money for life. Um, So, all of this fucking happened, and and Ethan Brown was trying to, like, get a hold of... um, Edwards, who I think may have been the sheriff at the time, and he said Edwards would not initially respond to my repeat calls for comments after this. He's like, however, after I submitted a public records request for the personnel file of one of his deputies, 
Edwards unexpectedly met me at the courthouse in Jennings to copy the file. So hmm. he like he just showed up to see like, hey, see what you what you doing there, mm-hmm. kind of you know protecting his own. Um, and so he ended up interviewing uh, Edwards there. And of course, he's like, I'm not aware. You have to give me a witness. You know, I can't do anything until you provide like proof mm. and blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'd, I'd love it, you know, if we had information, but I don't have that information. Um, he said, uh, Warren Gary left the sheriff's office around 2012 and couldn't be located for comment. So mm. he wasn't in charge of the evidence room for very long. Okay. This is a big story. It is a big story. So I am going to try to be as concise as possible because we're just like a little over halfway. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like try to just break it down because I'm getting exhausted and yeah, like but, really pissed off just yeah. <laughs> at all this bullshit. So basically what ends up happening or where it sits right now is like all of them had connections to Richard, um, the strip club owner, who also incidentally happens to be kind of the kingpin, or they call former kingpin, and had a lot of underlying uh, drug deals and was in control of all that and he portrays himself to brown basically as like oh i'm a former addict Mm. and i used to drink a lot i used to be in that world but that's not really me now i'm trying to make a clean living of it and all that but everything that ethan brown digs up points directly to this guy and Mm. his works with the sheriff's department and and the authorities there and it even even in a larger picture of um of what's going on it connects higher up in government to somebody who has dealings and i don't know if they said it was the governor at the time had some sort of connection to it's like the governor's one of the governor's associates or something had connections to that end down there which was like the hot spot for drugs and um, prostitution and at the end of all this it was basically, and y'all really go to meet, if y'all can, like, it's going to be like a couple of days for you to read this mm. and kind of process it because there's so much going on. There's so many associates. I ordered the book while you were talking. Oh, yes, <laughs> so. absolutely. Um, there's so much, like, there's so much going on. Like, one of the, the girls came in, um, to talk about Richards to the task force. And this is how this is kind of ending up. And while she was being interrogated, uh, this one high ranking task uh, force investigator told her, don't worry about Frankie because he works for me. Oh, great. Yeah. And so come to find out that Richard has a task force issued cell phone. And oh my God. That, like, you know, <clears throat> you know, several things like are directly connecting him. And so it's, it's kind of like who works for who here. Mm. It, it, it's really, it gets very muddy. Um, and at the center of this are all these women who were called up in it. And what it's, what we, 
what he figures started is, is that they witnessed a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, somebody, uh, they were like all getting high in this house and the cops came in and uh, one of the men there, uh, I think his name was Crochet, was um, was just like stuck in the hall when they came in and they're like, everybody, their hands up. And the officer claimed that he was going for his belt area and he shot him point blank Mm. and he had like uh, a girl several of the girls were there and witnessed that and there was no gun to be found and so they think because of the witness like within a day or two like all of those girls were in and out of that house. All of them knew what was going on. So there's like a lot of the big rumor is because they witnessed the police shooting an unarmed man that this kind of whole thing started. Like a domino effect. A domino like, effect. Mm. Um, and that, you know, since Richard uh, was entrenched in all of this, that, you know, I don't, it, I don't know. There's there's a lot of unanswered, like, was it drug? Obviously, it was drug-related because they were doing drugs there, and it Mm -hmm. was kind of a place um, known for getting high. But, like, his who did what and why and, like, it just... and all these women knowing who was going to kill them because yeah. of what they knew kind of deal and, and that nobody could protect them because like the multi-agency task force that was supposed to be there to protect them and figure out what the fuck was going on was looking for a serial killer because they obviously fucking well knew uh, the deep-seated corruption because you know none of the char- even when they would bring a charge none of it would stick mm. even when somebody came and like said this isn't right there is like some really fishy fuckery going on that they would lose their jobs or you know something would happen to them so um at the end of this whole interview thing uh ethan brown basically you know he's he's been talking to richard um here and he's you know he says that uh he said, as the sky over Jennings darkened, you know, him and Richard said goodbye on Richard's porch. And he's like, the mask of anxiety ridden, cornered, one time kingpin dropped. He's like, and he shouted out, if something ever happens to my kids behind this shit, they can believe one fucking thing. Frankie Richard's coming and hell is coming with him. <laughs> So there was a point um, while he was doing this investigative journalism, and this is something that the uh, Rolling Stones interview kind of touches on, that he was afraid to go into Jennings because when he was there, he would people would tell him, uh, you better watch yourself and definitely don't be out at night around here. So, you know, he got, I think, you know, obviously he got really close and he was like not pulling any punches with like what was happening there. And, um, it really, I think if, um, you know, Richards didn't take a shining to him or didn't like present kind of this, 
fatherly figure mm-hmm. of like I'm an innocent victim here and this is just the life we lead uh, lead kind of thing that he was trying to like I think he likes the attention I like mm. I think he likes being written about because everything mm-hmm. he wrote about he suspected he like fucking point blank told like Frankie Richard that he he was naming him as one of the chief suspects in all of his like investigation because ev- of all the shit that was turning up and that nothing was sticking to him and all just just everything is so fucking crazy and i looked i try to look like it's still unsolved mm-hmm. um and i like there's no like updates like there's no hmm. um who are the fucking cowboys that come in uh <laughs> like save the day and like you know take over the like, marshals the marshals <laughs> there's no fucking marshals coming in like they're all fucking corrupt and it's like nobody's willing to go in there and like it's it's kind of like the same he did the same uh ethan brown did the same reporting on what happened with the uh, police corruption in new orleans that was so bad like at katrina mm-hmm. look at those police officers shooting the people on the bridge wasn't that a thing mm-hmm. yeah oh my god so anyway really interesting so fucking complicated because there's so many connecting pieces so many people were related to one i mean everybody fucking knew everybody in that really small town they know what's going on and it's just it's just sad and the pictures like if you look at the women i mean it's just it's just really heartbreaking that not only they had to live that really horrible life and lifestyle, but just because of what, you know, some fucked up bullshit man did that they were murdered. Mm. Or men. Damn. Sorry. Got dark. Damn. <laughs> but read it, y'all. I'm going to post this link on our website. Seriously, make your little wall with pictures and mm-hmm. and string to like all the parties involved, and hopefully one day maybe we'll read about justice being served. I hope so. A lot of what I've read, those like some of the people involved are just like dying of old age or whatever, and retiring and moving on. And God will get them. Yeah, not being brought to justice. Mm. God or the devil. Yeah. Lord, but yeah, it's kind of a downer, but interesting mm-hmm. story. Um, something's got to be done. Something's got to be done. Can't put up with that bullshit. Nope. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you so much. We'll and talk to you soon. We will. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check out our website, thestrangesouth.com. All our social media links are there. And for extra fun and goodies, join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast. And if you love us so much that you want to support what we do and get bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes photos and videos, please consider joining our Patreon, Patreon, Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thestrangesouth.